Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, author of four books all about cycling, writer about all things fitness-related, and lover of most things fitness-related. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist in Ontario. Um, I'm also a moderately talented professional, I guess, bike rider, although I'm a very tired bike racer this week, so it's been an off week, but... Yeah, that's what I do. And then I also coach athletes over at smartathlete.ca. been doing that for a bunch of years. So a lot of the topics here on the show on the Consummate Athlete is talking about sort of my strategy, my philosophy of coaching, of trying to get athletes doing more things and being healthy people as well as really solid bike riders or whatever sport they're after. I feel like every time we start this, you, you try to like downplay your mountain biking stuff and then you're like, but actually I'm, I'm sort of a professional. Moderate, moderate, but moderate professional, professional, but tired. <laughs> well, I think we're both pretty tired this week. We were going to record the intro yesterday, but someone got me sick with some kind of virus, so we've both had a bit of a bit Sounds of an off scandalous week. too. I feel like it always ends. <laughs> One night, I remember in high school, this guy he came in and he was talking about computers, and you have to remember when I was in high school, like computers were just like you know, I, they weren't being invented when I was in high school, but they He's were pretty not that old. But the guy comes in and he goes, this is like physics class, so it's all pretty smart people. But, and he was just like, one night of kicks and I got a virus. <laughs> so that was like all of high school. That's all we said to this guy. One night of kicks. Yeah, and that's what I always think about when people say virus now, even if it's just unrelated to those type of viruses. Wow, we, we did not have any nights of kicks because someone was pretty down for the count for the last few nights. For those of you new to the show, we are married. This is not super weird and risque. <laughs> but anyway, both of us have had a bit of a... I guess a cold Peter probably picked up actually while he was going to throw one of your clients right under the bus here when he was in urgent care with one of his clients earlier this week after a bit of a disaster yeah. ride. I mean, looking at it, I think it's just I've been down training with training camps and stuff now for a few months, and I think I, I tend to think of myself as some sort of superhuman and forget that I need to take the same recovery and downtime that other people need to take and that I'm always preaching, so... I think it was a blessing in disguise. It was actually the same week last year, um, the same client actually had a spill and we ended up in a emergency room. So I think next year our learning is going to be to take an off off week. But Or it's going to be to let me drive to the ER just, next time. Well, I think just everyone should just take the week off. We'll just plan a lot of you know touristy type things or beach days or something. Absolutely. Speaking of touristy things, we're going whale watching today and I'm so excited. It's also St. Patrick's. There was St. Patrick's Day, so... It's apparently St. Patrick's Day in Nova Scotia today, I believe. Oh, there you go. Yeah, my Google Calendar showed that up. It's like, perfect, another day to drink Guinness. Uh, I missed corned beef and cabbage this year, so... Maybe they don't do that there. I don't know. That's an assumption. Well, that's that's an up, that's another episode altogether, We I haven't guess. talked to anyone from Nova Scotia. No, we haven't. We should probably find one. Anyway... Uh, other new things include a total... <laughs> just gonna just segue right out of that. Um, anyway, uh, new updates include... I just did a huge revamp on my website, uh, which was mollyherford.com, and mollyherford.com will still work, but now it's been sort of rebranded as theoutdooredit.com. Um, I'm really excited about it, talking a ton about different, you know, outdoor adventure, travel style basically all the stuff that I was talking about, but a little bit more pointed and just a huge revamp. It looks a lot better for one thing. 
and I think it's a lot easier to navigate. So please check it out. Let me know what you think. Um, you can tweet or Instagram me at Molly J. Herford and just let me know what you think or leave some, you know, a comment somewhere on the site. Uh, so that was my big thing for the week that took up, it took was, over my life. It was a big week of work for you, for sure. Uh, the other thing that happened this week is actually our dear friend Charlotte was visiting. Uh, she brought her mountain bike. She's been doing the van life thing for a couple months. So we recorded a podcast with her. I'm pretty stoked on. We'll have that in the next few weeks. Uh, but she and I also got to shred mountain bikes a bit and have some good, good girl time on the beach, but more importantly on the mountain bike. She is wicked good, super, super technically skilled. So it's always an adventure trying to keep up with her. She scares the crap out of me a lot of the time. Yeah, I took them, the ladies on a, a large backcountry adventure, and they hated me for probably 90 minutes of climbing up a large mountain. Uh, to be fair, I hated you more for the descent. Yeah, Molly didn't like the subsequent descent. <laughs> Give many, me the climb. Many cliff exposures and cactuses. Yeah. Cacti. Yeah, I actually fell into one yesterday on the same one that I did by myself, and uh, it still actually hurts, so I think the plant poisoned me. Um, but anyway, uh, today's podcast, though, is Bernard Condevo, who is a cycling and sport physical therapist. He's worked with three Olympic teams. He's absolutely obsessed with all things cycling-related, although he loves boxing, too, which is one of my favorite things. He works with, you know, baseball players, hockey players, just all different types of athletes. So we thought he'd be super fun to talk to about different acute and chronic issues that athletes have, what sort of goes from all, like what what injuries, I guess, you get across all sports. We talked about concussions. We talked about knee problems. We talked about my favorite PSA about saddle sores ever. If you ever want to know a good reason to get the heck out of your bike shorts after your ride and take care of saddle sores when they happen listen to this podcast also check out saddlesorebook.com but really listen to him in this podcast yeah he's got a good story i think there's a lot of stories like his yes um you always mention the pro athletes who take their knee injury vacations but it's there's actually a little quote marks surgery. on the knee injury yeah so I, I mean as much as it's a get out of your chamois as a preventative measure it's also just don't keep riding and you know modifying position and modifying saddles and modifying multiple pairs of bike shorts like at a certain point you, you got a saddle sore and you should go really get it looked at and you know, it may not be a quick journey or a quick fix, but it's it's easier if you, you turn back yeah. <laughs> turn back now versus turn back in three years. Exactly. But yeah, tons of really good, interesting information in this one. Yeah, uh, he's a very well-spoken man. It was really cool to have him on. Really good stories, too. So yeah. even if you don't have any, you know, niggling injuries or anything, you're going to want to listen to this one because it does have a ton of really interesting kind of insider info stories about working with the pros and working with... You know, the regular folks like us. So, yeah, we hope you enjoy this interview. This podcast is supported by Health IQ, a life insurance company that celebrates the health conscious, including cyclists and other endurance athletes. They're awesome because they take into account differences between endurance athletes and, well, people who aren't endurance athletes. So instead of measuring just BMI, they actually check the waist to hip ratio, which can help, you know, trackies and sprinters and those of us with more muscular builds. Yeah, they take into account 
you know, if you have a low resting heart rate or something, you know, they look at that as a good thing. They also take into account if you have a good diet. So they're looking at all these different elements that are sort of associated with a healthy, active lifestyle or a consummate athlete lifestyle. Oh, I like that. And they have forgiveness for family history issues, which can be, you know, super important for those of us who are leading a really healthy lifestyle, but maybe have some family members who haven't led particularly healthy lifestyles in the past. Anyway, to find out more, you can visit healthiq.com backslash consummate athlete to learn more and get a free quote. You can check out their life insurance FAQ page on the site as well to get your questions answered. Um, It's really great for us if you go to the consummate athlete one. Again, it's healthiq.com backslash consummate athlete, and it can be really good for you as well. So let's let's just dive in here. I okay. I feel like I'm gonna have to have you introduce yourself a little bit because I feel like you have you have so many qualifications. So you want to give us like a 30 second bio? Sure. I will. Uh, let's see. I will try to remember this. Uh, I'm Bernard Condevo. I'm a physical therapist, uh, certified uh, strength and conditioning specialist, and I'm a board certified sports physical therapist through the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties. I got my PT degree from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, so I'm a proud Detroiter, proud Michigander. (laughs) Um, I've been working in cycling for many years. I've been working with USA Cycling since 1995. Uh, I have been to every mountain bike world championship since 1993 when I worked with New Zealand. Uh, I worked with France my family's French. I was actually drafted by the French Army. Um, so I worked with France in 1994. And when you work with France, they're kind of like the Yankees. So that opened <laughs> the door to USA Cycling when you when you work with the big boys uh, and the big girls. They were very tough. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then from there, I have done three Olympic games, four Pan Am games, multiple Pan Am championships. I've done some cyclocross worlds. Uh, I've done Tour California a few times with uh, the various incarnations of Quick Step. I have done the uh, U.S. Pro Challenge, or the what used to be the Pro Challenge, with Quick Step as well. Uh, I have worked, I've helped out uh, Rally Cycling back when they were um, Optum, and I've worked with various cyclists uh, throughout the years just to had things just through the connections. Uh, I wasn't physical therapy consultant for the Colorado Rockies baseball club from 1993 to 2000. And I did the same thing for the Colorado Avalanche hockey club from 1995 until 2003, the last strike. Holy moly. (laughs) Yeah. So a little bit. I, first of all, I'm amazed that you and I haven't crossed paths. Um, because, yeah, I've interviewed the Optum team a bunch of times out here. Actually, we're in Oxnard, California now, and nice. that's where I used to, you know, go and interview them. And I've, you know, hung out with the rally team. I've been at a bunch of the cyclocross worlds. So nice. it's funny that we haven't. Yeah, it's to... been more, yeah, with rally, it was more like when people were hurt. Um, Jonas would call me, and, uh, you know, I, I helped out a couple of people. Worked with Jonas a little bit on some issues, so. Okay, very um, cool. Yeah. And then in your Twitter bio, it says you're a devotee of cycling and boxing. Uh, I love boxing. <laughs> so do you do you personally box or? Uh, you know what? I like hitting the speed bag, and I'll hit the heavy bag. 
I found that uh, physical therapists in Swan years need their hands, mm-hmm. and I used mm-hmm. to have a bit of an anger management problem. And I found that hitting walls was not conducive to my career. So after my second broken hand, uh, I did more wrapping the hands, hitting the gloves, and it's been uh, it's been much better for my morale. I feel like I <laughs> well, do, much calmer individual. <laughs> had you stayed in Europe, I feel like it actually is almost like a rule that as a cycling uh, person, you need to be punching walls. So you're probably <laughs> better off being in the yeah, U.S. then. Yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm right-handed. I need this right hand. When the second time I did it, I just, I went to the hospital, and they x-rayed it, and they're like, hey, you have to wait for a radiologist. I said, I'm, I'm going home. It's broken. <laughs> Fourth and fifth metacarpal. Well, you know, we don't know that. See that bone? That's supposed to be straight like this one. See that jagged point? That's a fracture. Yeah. Have a good night. I'm going home. <laughs> it was just more frustration of what an idiot. So, yeah. I've that. learned. Yeah. yeah, I was a slow learner, but I eventually learned. Yep. I uh, I used to take some uh, ultimate fighting training for a, a bit, or mixed martial arts stuff, and then I, I quit because I realized everyone around me had broken noses, and I'm a major mm-hmm. fan of my nose, so yep. <laughs> I was well, out. <laughs> yep, I have, I have very much a French nose. As strange as it sounds, when I'm in France, people say I look French. So, yeah, my nose... Uh, <laughs> it's definitely an easy target, so I try to protect that. So I like hitting things that don't necessarily hit back. Yep, yep. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so in, in working with all of these different athletes, did you notice if any one sport kind of tended to have the most, like, chronic injuries, or is it just kind of every sport? Um, You know, different types, different types. I find that uh, obviously cycling um, – because with any athlete, one of the biggest things I found working with athletes, especially athletes who achieve anything, so if it's a recreational baseball player, um, a recreational cyclist, a recreational runner, it's not the same because, hey, if you hurt, you stop. Mm-hmm. But people who have had a level of success um, and have been able to move up the ladder, so to speak, tend to learn how to compartmentalize pain. So to train hard, if you're going to train on hills or do intervals, or if you're doing strength training in the off-season for baseball or some of the hockey workouts that we would put people through, it's, it's a challenge, and you're going to go into some level of discomfort. And, you know, in cycling, they always talk about, you know, you have to learn how to suffer. So you learn to just say, okay, this comes with the territory, and you'll work through the pain. So... I find that at the higher level, almost any sport has some kind of a chronic injury, and it's just going to be a difference on on which sport and which injury. I mean, with with baseball, it's going to be more rotator cuff tendonitis. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally, when they finally come in for the shoulder, it may be the labrum's gone because the cuff's been so fatigued and the mechanics have altered, and now they've increase the damage. I mean, everybody knows about tennis elbow with tennis players. Runners will get, you know, chronic Achilles tendonitis or hamstring tendonitis or jumper's knee. Um, And with cyclists, I get a lot of back pain. I'll get a lot of hip pain. Um, Occasionally Achilles, not as much. Uh, A lot of it is sometimes a factor of bike fit, but they will put up to a certain level. And then when it's like, okay, now I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. That's the cue to come in versus, well, you know, when you've been struggling to get through the session, 
that is probably a cue that you need some attention. Yeah, that was actually something I was going to ask next is as as a physical therapist, when do you when do you wish people would start coming to you? Well, ideally, you know, and this is kind of a a mixed wish. Sometimes you want them to come at the first notice because I, I would work on a lot of workers comp uh, cases before. And one of the beauties in professional sports is when you're dealing with professional baseball players, professional hockey players, they're all work comp injuries because mm-hmm. that's their job. So people think work comp, this is a disaster. But one of the nice things with work comp was when somebody got hurt, it got addressed right away. And if you get something acute, so say you went for a nice hilly run and your Achilles is just kind of throbbing and it's like, ah, you know, I'll pop some Advil, you know, maybe put in a, a heel lift and run. Now you're going to build up on it. If I got it that first day, we can really knock it down and say, okay, this may hold you back for, you know, just to throw out a number for three days to maybe a week or so versus by the time you finally decide I can't deal with this anymore, now we're looking at a longer time frame out of sports. So mm-hmm. ideally, the sooner the better, but by the same token, I don't want anybody going, ooh, I felt a twitch, I better come in, because mm-hmm. then they're never going to get anywhere. So my general rule of thumb is if you have pain that either is lasting into the next day, so say you did some training and you're still sore the next day and it's not you know, the DOMS type soreness, delayed onset muscle soreness, if it's a joint pain or a pain, not a soreness, that's a flag. If you're getting to the point to where, okay, I could train for four hours and I was fine, now, you know, I'm struggling to get through three hours, and then it's getting to where it's getting shorter and shorter before the pain forces you to either stop or modify how you're training, that's a sign that this needs to be taken care of because it's altering your function. Mm-hmm. Now, I know, I don't know, delayed onset muscle soreness is sort of a tough one. Like, is there a way to sort of tell when it's just DOMS or is there like a warning sign that it might not just be like as simple as like, oh, you went really hard one day and now you're just sore for like five days? Well, I mean, and then, and that's a very good question because sometimes, for example, one of the things that we were seeing a fair amount in CrossFit, and it just happened up at the University of Oregon with some of the football players, was rhabdomyolysis. Right. Which is, you've gone well beyond doms on that one Um, but in general it's if you've done a lot of eccentric loading so say you did a lot of downhill running Mm -hmm. and the muscles that you would expect to be sore are like the quadriceps uh maybe your anterior tib um things like that where you've done a lot of negative work a lot of deceleration you're normally going to have the doms or if you've done you know it's your first time doing hill repeats or something like that where you've changed the workout level, and you can say, okay, I raise the intensity. DOMS should typically clear within two days. Uh, you may still have some soreness, but it's definitely backed off. If it's not backing off within two days, you've probably gone beyond that. Okay. So if you've gone beyond that, do you just take an extra day off? or? Well, yeah, you, you take an extra day off or do some light spinning. I'm, I'm very big on active recovery, so there's nothing wrong with, say, if you did a hard session, you know, pop the bike on a trainer and just spin. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think you could do some, some zone five for a while, just 
let the body, I mean, I don't think you have to just absolutely rest. Um, definitely ice up, you know, ice baths would be a good thing, or even just putting some ice on the sore areas. Um, but if it's not resolving or if it's resolving but not significantly, <clears throat> then you may want to keep an eye on things, especially if it was a heavier load. Mm-hmm. Typically, you're not going to see rhabdo in something like cycling. That's going to be more you've truly overloaded. So something like a CrossFit, uh, heavy weight lifting, power lifting, things like that are going to lead to a higher likelihood of uh, of rhabdo. It was originally in uh, like football players going to team camp and just getting just drilled into the ground, I think, was where the originally before CrossFit came along, that was sort of the major, <laughs> most of the incidents. Yeah, and that's, that. absolutely, and that's what happened at Oregon is they had the, um, they had new coach, and I don't know if the strength coach is new, but uh, they had some of the players hadn't really worked out in three months since the season ended. And it was one of those, you keep going until this is perfect, and some guys got it done quick, and other guys were out there doing push-ups for like an hour. Oh, and I think they had three or four cases uh, of rhabdo, which is just inexcusable at the collegiate level, well, at any level for that matter. But really, at that point, you know, everyone should be, uh, at the very least, a uh, certified strength conditioning specialist or some kind of uh, certification or degree where you know better than that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the worst medical advice that I have ever gotten in my life was uh, when I basically had DOMS just all of the time, but I didn't know what that was and didn't really believe in days off because I was young and stupid. Um, <laughs> one one doctor told me to just start taking ibuprofen every time I yep. exercised. <laughs> yep. That's very common. You see that with runners a lot. Um, you know, there's certain people, if it's going to be, you know, your Sunday long run for training for a marathon, they just pop Advil all the time. Take the ibuprofen, do your long training. It's just like taking a vitamin. And it's the problem is prolonged use can damage your kidneys. Yep. My kidneys it can were certainly like alter half. your. Like when mine yeah. finally got tested a few months, like probably six months after that, they were functioning at like half function. And and the other thing is, you know, sometimes it's going to mask your sensation. And mm-hmm. although it's truly, a, you know, some people get pain benefits from it. And, you know, pain is really your body telling you, okay, time to pull the brakes on this. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, I always tell people, you don't have to fear pain, but you have to respect pain. I love that. Soreness is okay, but pain is your body saying, okay little too far back yep. off and i tell people if we're doing this resistance this is what i want you to feel if it becomes pain and the simple definition of pain is i can tell it's just not right mm-hmm. i i can say you know my gut is this is too much and this really hurts that's saying okay your body's going no back off and it's you know we develop pain fibers for a reason but they're also the most primitive nerve signals we can take so you can do things to override it. You can put compression stockings. You can put TENS units. You can put balms. You can put pressure. And your body will perceive that instead of the pain. But pain serves a functional purpose. Yeah, absolutely. So you've been doing this for, like, 25 years now, <laughs> working um, with teams? 
Working with the teams, yeah, this will be my actually my 25th uh, mountain bike world championship this year. Holy moly. So in those 25 years, I imagine there's been a ton of change in terms of like <laughs> recovery and that kind of stuff. Are there any major ones that jump out to you that are things that you guys were telling athletes to do back in the 90s that now you would never tell them to do? Um, I don't know if there's anything I, I, I would say don't do this, but uh, there's certainly... I mean, we didn't have Normatec or, you know, the the compression stockings. A, I mean, other than for post-op people, but the pneumatic ones, you know, that you mm-hmm. put on and they pump the fluid. We didn't have stuff like that. I mean, we had basic stim. We had ultrasound, which we really don't use much anymore. Um, it was basically massage, elevate your legs. Now people are doing ice baths. I mean... Certain things come in and out of vogue. I mean, ice baths aren't really new, but they'd gone away for a while. They've come back. Um, now you can have, you know, cryo chambers with the nitrogen to get a, a quick freeze. I mean, we don't use them with cycling because very few people have that kind of currency. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I think pharmacologically, and I mean legal pharmacological, <laughs> pharmacology, <laughs> not uh, mm-hmm. the other stuff that's been around forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's just different awareness. And I, I, what I have found is that from when I started, if you looked at the cyclists and you look at them now, I mean, training has changed so much. The science of it has gotten so much before it was just, you know, like the Eddie Merckx, you know, ride more, ride faster. Um, and now, you know, we periodize things. Okay. Here's how you train the off season. Here's when you do strength training. Here's when you do the more intense efforts. Here's when you maintain, um, you know, zone five versus zone two. I mean, there's there's so much more science to it, and you can see that the bodies have evolved more towards the sport. I mean, now, I mean, my gosh, when we were in Beijing, I remember walking through the tents with the, the pro riders, and it was just, you know, I think, you had T-Rexes looking at their arms going like, okay, I'll arm wrestle that guy. I mean, he's got nothing. So it's basically they were evolved to become these very lean, powerful legs and these two little sticks that could just hold on to handlebars. <laughs> it's gotten better, but, I mean, because now you get Pilates, you get yoga. There's a higher awareness of core stability, scapular stability than there was, which I think has improved the performance especially in mountain biking, but also cyclocross and on the road and even on the track. So I think just the awareness of how to train, how to optimally recover. I mean, so many athletes travel with foam rollers now. Uh, They have their little compacts to work the muscles out after. It's just there's a lot more tools and a lot more awareness. And that said, there's also things that I'm a little skeptical about, Um, but, you know, there's there's just a lot more out there. So I don't think there's any, there was never, I mean, you know, it's never like we said, you know, put these leeches on your legs and <laughs> drink this bicarbonate and you'll be good. But it's just, it's been a little bit more evolved on, you know, the athlete's awareness, both on preparation and recovery. I think that's been the biggest thing is they come in knowing so much more now. Mm-hmm. I'm actually now just thinking like with all of like the really kooky health and wellness stuff now, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say next year might be the year leeches come in in style for recovery <laughs> well, stuff. You know, believe it or not, they leeches do get used on occasion for wound healing. 
There oh, are some right. places will actually use leeches because their saliva can help heal the wound. I mean, it was funny. It's one of those that, you know, next we're going to get the barber and start bleeding people. Yep. But a lot of these things, there was something to it. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, not, not to say I'm a proponent of leeches or bleeding, <laughs> but being uh, my family's from France and a lot of them are in the country in France. And, you know, you think about the United States, Ed, don't want to get political, but prior to about eight weeks ago, mm-hmm. we were very heavily science-focused. So if there was research that supported this, I mean, when it came to doctors, they were very adamant on this works, this doesn't work. If you go into Europe or in China, there have been people who just have certain healing properties. They've gone to them because those people would make the balms if you were burned mm-hmm. or things like that. And there are certain things where... I do believe there's something to acupuncture. I do think there's something to Eastern medicine, which would get scoffed at in the West previously. But just because we can't always explain it, the body's pretty complex. Now, you know, I've had people who tried to tell me the, uh, those, remember those performance bands with the holograms on them? Oh, yeah. I mean, those were all the rage, and they made a ton of money. And there were people in the cycling industry who would wear these and they would tell you these things are amazing. They balance it. And I I would just say, okay, hold on. This is a hologram. How can it balance it? Does it matter if I wear... That's going to be the subtitle of this paragraph. Hold on. This is a hologram. But I mean, it'd be, okay, so if I wear it on my right... Does it matter that if I next time wear it on my left, what if I wear two? Can I get a hologram toxicity? Will it counter itself? And it was one of those I saw, and they said it can improve your balance. And I, I've since learned the scam, and I've, I've given people, like, I'll put a Livestrong band on their wrist and say, watch how this can work, too. And you push, <laughs> and they actually don't know what I've done. Physical therapists, I've done athletic trainers, and I've done this test, and they know I'm doing something, but they don't know what it is. Now, if I sell it rather than I'm obviously yanking your chain, if I sell it like this is the trick, because a lot of athletes are not particularly smart. <laughs> when I was going to school, when I went to school, I worked in a gym for a while back in Michigan. And with a lot of bodybuilders, and I got, God love bodybuilders, I'm not insulting bodybuilders in any way, but if you told them that if they you know, eight, four ounces of sawdust a day, and they would get bigger muscle growth, they'll eat four ounces of sawdust a day. They would eat so much protein. And, and I would sit there and go, okay, you know, you can use 1.8 kilograms for body weight. Here's how the way it works. No. You know, you got to have the protein to rebuild. And I know nutrition's gone a long way, but they would eat protein. they take amino acid capsules. And I would just think, you know, that's really expensive pee you've got right now. Because that's all you're doing is peeing this stuff out. Mm -hmm. But they believe it, so they'll take it. And there's been other things like that. Just I'll take this and it's magic. You know, I just don't believe in magic. True, but I do believe in the placebo Uh, effect. (laughs) Well, and there's no question. And I have no problem with the placebo effect. If somebody believes it will help them, and I know that it will not hurt them, I'll 100% support it. Yeah, but if I think it's ever, I mean, my biggest rule with with athletes, and I, it was funny, 
um, when I first started working with the U.S. team, uh, there was another guy there, and this was almost my last year with the U.S. team because <laughs> it was basically I'd worked with some guys. I'd worked Redlands with a bunch of mountain bikers. So at the day, it was you know Bob Roll, John Tomac, Mike Closer, Mark Gullickson. I mean, we had a lot of the, the top guys <clears throat> who would do this kind of like a spring training at Redlands. So I knew some of these guys when I came over to the U.S. team. Well, you know, there was basically somebody didn't like that the new kid was coming into town, so there was some bad-mouthing going on, and this was before I was taking up boxing, so I <laughs> did have a bit of an anger problem. So they basically called us in because I, I probably said some things that might get me arrested now, <laughs> and so they called us in to work this out, and, and he was telling me, he said, you don't understand what it's like to work with an elite athlete. They're, they're like horses. You just have to tell them they got a tweak. And your job is to get them to race. And I thought, okay, well, I work with people making $15 million a year as athletes. And I tell them, here's what's going on. Here's the risk if you do this. Here's the risk if you do that. What do you want to do? And I found that most athletes, if you explain the situation to them, they'll make the right decision. Mm -hmm. But they need to understand, for example, we had a downhiller. He had a scaphoid fracture. It was the world championships. Okay, we could brace you. I can try to tape you. We can give you a wider grip on the bars. We can do whatever we can to try to get you down this course. You may be fine. However, if you crash and that scaphoid gets further damaged, it may never heal because there's not good blood flow to the scaphoid. So you may be risking a permanent disability. You may not ever be able to race at this level again. So the question is, yes, it's the World's Championships. It's a big race. They're going to have one next year. Mm -hmm. I can't guarantee you're going to make the team, but you're not done racing. So... What do you want to do? If you want to go for it, I will do everything I can to put you in a good position. I just want you to understand the risks. And basically, when I explained that was my point, whether you're a... Because at the time, I think the highest paid mountain biker, they, they made pretty good money. I mean, I, they, were, they were making six figures for sure. Probably um, more than they're but, making now. Oh, yeah. Oh, the absolutely. 90s. People were getting Jeeps in the 90s. <laughs> oh, exactly. It was, I mean, it was crazy. I remember when somebody got a pay cut. I'm not going to use his name, but... They cut his pay, and it was like, holy, they cut you by, you make how much? You know, it was one of those, wow, you're still making that much, and they cut you by that much? But, you know, by the same token, I was working with baseball players who were making absurd amounts of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were bringing a paycheck, and that was bigger than I'd make in a year. And it was, you know, there's no jealousy. It's, you know, that's that's what you do. So I've always felt that, you know, they're not racehorses. Mm -hmm. They're they're humans. And let me explain in terms that they can understand. Mm -hmm. Here's here's what's good. And I don't want to talk about a racing. I just want to make an intelligent decision because I never want anybody to come back to me. And and my thing is, you know, when I'm working with athletes, yeah, sometimes I may talk too much. I find myself humorous at times when maybe other people <laughs> don't. I, I hear that from my family all the time. Um, but I always put their welfare first. I feel like I'm their dad. 
I my job is to put them in a position for them to succeed, but I will never ever do anything that could potentially harm them. So I want them to be if it's a junior, I'm going to be different than if it's an elite because I will still give them the advice, but I'm going to be a little bit more forceful, I think, on the junior saying, here's why you don't. And mm-hmm. if it's ever a situation where I think they should not be out there, I will go to the team leadership and say, you know what, they should not be out there. And in fact, when I worked with France in 1994, which is, don't even tell me if you didn't go to high school yet, because I don't want to know. Um, oh, yeah, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in 1994... Top French downhiller had run into a pole in Vail, and he wanted to race because it was the world championships, oh. and, and he had a good shot of gold medal. And I, and I went to the doctor, and I went to the team director. I said, no, he can't race. And this was before concussions were all the rage like they are now. But mm-hmm. I said, there's, there's no way. He can't race safely, and they pulled him. He was not happy about it, but I could not, with a clear conscience, say, boy, he's really adamant. He's a great racer. Even if he had done well, the risk if he didn't do well was so high mm-hmm. that I, you know, that's just not uh, that's not something I'm ever going to do. So I maybe people won't like it sometimes, but again, I feel like my role in that is to be not their conscience, but like a parent saying, "I want what's the best for you." If they do well, I tell you when when they get good results. I'll never take any credit for it, but man, I like to bask in their glory. I love to see the success they have because that makes me feel good. I love seeing them do well. Bernard, I'm wondering, you mentioned concussions. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. what's your take? You know, what have you seen as far as research and in the field and stuff? You know, you're in some pretty high, high force or sports that are prone to big collisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and my my wheelhouse, I guess, is mostly in mountain biking, cross country, and I've seen a ton of concussions, especially in, I would say, younger females, so under yep. 22, the 15 to 22 range, but also in some, you know, it's not only females for sure, but that's, my bias is that it seems to be mostly in that age group, which might be just, again, the segment I work with, but I'm wondering what you're seeing in sort of all the sports you're working with. I'm going to also say I think it's because females are smart enough to report symptoms, whereas there's a lot of of young men who are just barreling through. There's some truth to that. I do believe there's some truth to that. I mean, there's a reason that more men die of heart attacks than women, because Mm -hmm. they always think it's something. My father had a heart attack, and he was telling me, it's pumpkin pie, I've got indigestion, leave me the F alone. <laughs> and that, with a French accent, mind you. And I was like, Dad, you've got symptoms down your left arm, you've got chest pain, you're short, this is a classic heart attack. Leave me alone, if I'm still feeling it in the morning, we'll go. And being French, he was also cheap, and I said, either you come with me to the hospital, or we call an ambulance. Ambulances are really expensive, but <laughs> it's one or the other. Went to the hospital. He had like 5% of his heart working. Oh, but it's he would have been, you know, he was, again, playing tennis, riding his bike all the time, swimming all the time. He was contented to say, hey, I'm fine. So that's an offshoot. Um, men are not the smarter race. 
um, spar- part of the species. <laughs> yeah, but man, I, I've got nothing but girls in my house other than me and the dog, so I'll have no <laughs> argument. Um, but no, going back to the question, I think with the young... Concussions are strange because the same force that might give me a concussion might not give you a concussion. And determining... You know, back in the day when, you know, hey, you got your bell rung, things like that. You know, you can get some trauma to the brain. Technically, any kind of trauma to the brain of a certain magnitude is going to cause a concussion. Whether it is truly symptomatic can be debatable. Um, But the problem is that it doesn't have to be a contact. It can be a really fast rotation. It can be a fast deceleration. You could be in a car get rear-ended and just snap your head forward like a whiplash, never strike your head and get a concussion because of a coup contra coup, French words, brain goes forward and the fluid bounces off the front of your skull and bounces off the back of the skull. So one of the common misconceptions is that it has to be a contact to get a concussion. It doesn't have to be. Now that said, in the younger divisions, I think what becomes a problem is they're not sponsored in most cases. So how many times have they crashed? Bang their head, but they were fine. But a helmet technically should, should be good for one crash. Mm-hmm. So they're riding in helmets that now have lost the protective properties, and they may crash in them again, and now maybe a lesser force is going to lead to a concussion. So one of the biggest problems I see is that kids crash Nobody knows. Or, you know, when they're kids and they fling their helmets over because they get angry or something, they smack it. You know, don't do that. And if you do crash in your helmet, replace it. You know, I tell them a lot of times companies will have a, you know, if you send your helmet in or or calls, we'll replace it for X number of dollars or just break it down because I've done the lessons with the melon on the floor where you go, okay, this is your brain, boom. Boom doesn't look so good. So I think it's not necessarily they're more common in the younger ages. I think they're missed more in the younger ages because I've seen parents say they're fine, and I will tell them they're not fine in in mountain bike races, in baseball when they got hit by a pitch. I've seen it in hockey. Definitely in in hockey. I, I saw one, I, I kid you not, I was helping some friends at a rugby game. This guy literally smoked. He went to tackle a guy, knee to the head, on his back. He's out cold. So, uh, can he go back in? <laughs> no. But he's okay now. He was unconscious like two minutes ago. I mean, like, literally out like a light. And they're like, but he's fine now. And that's the weird thing with concussions. I may look at you, we'll run through the protocol, and you answer the questions, you do this, and and by all accounts, you're fine. But then in three hours, you start getting a splitting headache. Or the next day, you get nauseous. So that's what's difficult about concussions is symptoms can change. You may get nausea or light sensitivity somebody else may just have difficulty focusing somebody else may just get headaches how much of a concussion headache is due to you've got neck pain from from banging your head so concussions are pretty complex i think the research is 
it's good. I mean, they've certainly done a lot, and, and I think in most cases we err on the side of caution. Not always, but usually. Um, but as people start getting concussive symptoms, they can be either vestibular, that was a result of a concussion, and maybe you had crystals in your middle ear, and that's throwing you off. Um, it could be a cervical restriction, which is causing headaches, and maybe a little bit of dizziness, and light sensitivity, where your brain may actually be fine, but you're getting symptoms from someplace else. So um, there's a lot of people who are taking concussion rehab much more seriously now. And, and part of it is going through the different processes, how much is visual field, how much is cognition, how much is actually an orthopedic problem with your neck, um, how much is vestibular, and really trying to break that down. So it, it's hard to give an easy answer on that because it's a fairly, it's common, but it's a fairly complex situation. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I think your answer is good and covered a lot and certainly the different like it's not just recovery of, I guess, the brain as a global thing. I like that you touched mm -hmm. on vestibular and the visual side of it. Um, neck muscles, I've heard as well, being part of it. You know, people having symptoms until, you know, they've treated with some strength training stuff. I think that was the Sidney Crosby thing ended up being sort of a muscle strengthening. Uh, Supposedly, although with Sidney, if you watch when he got his concussion, he probably got it a little bit before the one that they recognized. So he was, by a lot of accounts, he was a second impact syndrome. Well, in third which and is fourth, worse. I think, right? I think he well, got it a few times. Yeah, but I mean, in that game in particular, right. he got drilled and then he got drilled again. And one of the things that happens when you get a concussion, a true concussion, the potassium cycle in your brain just gets accelerated. So basically, there's a bunch of potassium it gets released and the channels aren't functioning right. So if you put somebody out at risk and they get hit again, the brain is already in a very vulnerable position and it can't recover. So it's basically, it's been traumatized. It's an incredibly vulnerable state. Now you put in a trauma and it can't adequately respond and it becomes a big cascade, which is why second impact syndrome is such a, a big to do and why they're so big on trying to have, you know, independent spotters in the NHL who can look and say, take that guy off the ice, you know, he's looking bad. Does, is it a perfect system? No. I mean, if anybody watched uh, the Patriots when they beat the Seahawks, I think most people would accept that, uh, who was it, Edelman probably had a concussion. I mean, he was definitely looking loopy by all means, and they left him in the game. So, you know, I do think that there's a human error factor, but true independent spotters, I think, uh, have been a huge plus to a lot of the professional sports because it takes out any of the bias on, we need this guy in the game, or, hey, this game's tight, we can't afford it, this is one game from the Super Bowl, whatever. A true independent spotter can look and say, at least take him off and, and check him out. Mm -hmm. So so I wonder if we think back, I don't want to go too far down the concussion thing here, mm -hmm. but it's something that I think about a lot again because it seems like it's coming up a lot. Um, and I think Molly and I can both name probably five to ten people pretty quickly here who are dealing with post-concussion you know, symptoms that are going mm -hmm. between six months, two years even. Um, and we'd be hard-pressed to name someone that we know that hasn't had at least one concussion. <laughs> well, sure. but the, um, what I'm more not concerned about, but I guess curious in some ways, um, is 
you know, back in the good old days, I call this the good old dame theory, is that you'll hear the good yeah. old boys say, like, oh, you know, it never used to be that way. You used to get hit on the head. You know, everyone was getting Jeeps in the mountain bike days, like we were talking mm-hmm. about. And I just don't remember. I don't know if it was because I was young and self-centered or, you know, <laughs> versus now I have some, you know, coaching clients and they're older and, you know, and I'm working with more younger athletes and stuff too. Um, maybe I'm just more aware of it, but it seemed to me like back then... <laughs> there wasn't this prolonged, like, obvious, like, someone's mother is, you know, bedridden for two years because of a car accident or a a cycling accident. You know, I I actually think it was there. We just didn't have the awareness of what to call it. So, for example, in football, somebody gets post-concussive syndrome, he's not on the team anymore. Eh, you know, he got headaches, he's, uh... You know, he just can't, he can't practice. Next. And they didn't go like, wow, he banged his head. He had a cushion. Nobody cared. You could either play or you couldn't. So I think maybe if you look back, somebody who had an injury, <clears throat> a potential concussion, and then maybe the results weren't as good or they couldn't train as well and they basically just drifted away from the sport. Um, I think it was more people went away and we focused on who was still there. Uh, then, then it didn't happen because I'm, I'm a hundred percent certain it happened, but I will, I will plead ignorance as well. I didn't know, you know, it could just be like, ah, you know what? Wuss. He mm-hmm. never bounced back. I mean, it was, it was different. I mean, back then, you know, Hey, drinking water was a sign of weakness, you know, in a hot practice. So, um, we're certainly much smarter than that, but I, I do think it happened we just didn't know how to label it. So, I mean, there's been people who, you know, who knows, maybe they got into medications because they could never recover it. And then it was just like, ah, oh, that person just, you know, they're a drunk or whatever. I just don't think we knew what to classify it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. We had a couple of questions from, from a couple cyclists that wanted to get some expert advice. Uh, so hopefully you can you can help some of them out. <laughs> I'll see if um, I can track anybody down here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody help! I need an expert. Yeah, I know. Experts. <laughs> um, so one woman was asking. She says she feels like a bobblehead when she's on the bike. She gets she ends up with a really sore and tired neck while riding mm-hmm. if she's off road yep. or doing long rides. And I have to yep. say, I have been feeling sort of the same way, like tight upper back. Mm-hmm. So yep. any any recommendations or suggestions there? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I think, and, and, and I will tell you how I, I'm not going to say I discovered this, but how I figured it out. Um, we were doing a class on TMJ, temporal mandibular, so basically the jaw pain. And one of the tests they wanted us to do was you lay on a table, you know, a treatment table, massage table. You could do it off your bed. So just so your shoulders are supported, but your neck is not and your head is not, you want to tuck your chin and hold your head level. And you should be able to do that for two minutes. Well, I was with a bunch of people and I would, you know, not being arrogant, but I was considered probably one of the most athletic amongst the group. Mm -hmm. And within 15 seconds, I cannot hold my head. It's just (laughs) like I'm in an earthquake. And they're like, Stop messing around. I'm like, I, can't, I cannot hold my head. And they're just like, seriously. And I said, I, I, 
unbelievably. I can't hold it. And it's the longest coli. So it's your deep neck flexor. It runs basically, uh, it's a deep muscle. It'll help flex your, or tuck your chin. And it runs along the front of your neck, basically on either side of the Adam's apple. So why is that relevant? Well, because you're thinking, what gets sore? The extensors in the back of your neck, right? Mm-hmm. These are kind of like a guy wire is the way I like to describe it. So if you picture your head is a bowling ball on a little stick, okay? And it's a flimsy stick, so it's bamboo, it can flex. So now I'm sitting on a bike, and my head is at a 45-degree angle, say, and I've got these two little wires trying to hold this head back as the bamboo starts to sag under the pressure. Wouldn't it be good to have two things on the other side as a counterforce to straighten that bamboo out? That's what the longest coli is. It is a deep flexor, and it actually is a counterbalance to your neck extensors. And what I have found is when people get weak, they start extending their ride, those muscles are weak, and you basically sag. And in most positions, when you're riding, your arms are down in the drops or on the bars, and what? Your head is cranked up looking forward, so your mm-hmm. head's already extended. By strengthening the longest coli, you will find a dramatic difference in the amount of neck pain you get, the fatigue at the base of your neck when it just feels like you can't hold your head up. It, it seems counterproductive, but if you think about it, what is the force that creates whiplash? You're hit from behind, and your head snaps back, and it stretches the muscles in front and weakens them. What position are we in most of the time when we ride? We're, we're almost in a whiplash position. Mm-hmm. So those muscles are under a long chronic stretch, and they get weak, and we just lean into them more, and it compresses your spine, and those muscles in the back are trying to hold it with no help from the front. So things I recommend, you can test yourself on laying on a table with just your shoulders supported, leave your head and neck off, tuck your chin so your neck stays in a straight line, and I'm using my hand gestures, so <laughs> hopefully you're picking that up. Um, but so you keep that level and just time yourself. And if you are really struggling to hold it for at least 30 seconds, you need to strengthen your longest coli. Ways to strengthen it, you can do that same position, but you don't want to go into the actual bobbing and fatigue. So maybe 10-second holds and relax mm-hmm. and actually have some support there. <clears throat> or you can sit, you can tuck your chin and do an isometric where you push against your forehead and don't let it go back. But the key is you want your chin tucked so your neck is in a straight line. You do not want your neck extended. Okay. And I think you'd be amazed at the difference that makes in uh, cyclist neck pain. I have a great, great, great success with that. Oh, I love that. That's a great answer, and it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and I mean, it's when you think about it, you look at the posture on the bike, it's like, well, gosh, no wonder. But, you know, it's, I think, intuitively, you would think it's the muscles in the back because that's what's supporting. Mm-hmm. But they get really sore because they're doing everything, and they need the help, so... I think I think you'll find that would be a, a huge help for that. I love that. Yeah, I think that's a good one for sure. I've seen that different variations of that with people like laying on the ground, um, maybe with like a bolster under their shoulders or something, and then sort of just trying to elevate the, the head or, as you say, sort mm-hmm. of chin tucking. So that's yeah. like basically what you're thinking of there. Yeah, but what you want to do is I think not just curling that. Like you'd see the wrestlers would do their moves where they're really bringing your head, or even boxers for that matter, to, to resist punches. They'll actually do 
like a head curl where they put weights and they do it up. We don't need to go through that much force. I think just doing an isometric hold, so if you tuck your chin and lift it so that you're recruiting the longest coli specifically. Right. So like chin, has a chin, result. chin to chest, like chin to sternum type Yeah, you thing? could do chin to chest, absolutely. So you could lift it up but keeping that. So basically once you tuck your chin, your neck moves as one. You're not doing a segmental lift, if that makes sense. Okay, but also not um, protracting the head, I think would be the right uh, term? No, not really protracting. I think if you maintain the tuck, like you're thinking that's flexion, as far as you need to Flexion, go. not protraction. Exactly. Okay. Uh, the next little quandary or question we had here was um, we have a cyclist with knee pain, um, but it's sort oh. of knee. Yes, I know, rare. shocking. Rare, oh. I know. This is an odd one. <laughs> um, but odd in that um, what he's describing is sort of a lump or knot in uh, sort of the mid medial quad, so um, the, the thigh muscle. Okay. Uh, so he's got sort of a, a lump that he can sort of feel. Um, but then it's sort of referring occasionally down to like sort of the medial knee, um, not to the kneecap, but just sort of medial knee area. Um, and so he's tried a few things. He's rolling it and he's taking some time off. Um, but it seems to be aggravated mostly whenever the force gets higher, cadence gets lower. Um, but also just by the pedaling motion. So. How, how did it start? Was there an injury? Um, I would say ramping of volume, but also uh, steep hill climbing would probably be... Because when you get a lump, I mean, that could indicate a couple things. You could either have, like, like a major, for lack of a better term, like a trigger point, where you get an accumulation of waste and you get, like, a knot in the muscle. And with trigger points, if you put a pressure on that, while it helps it break up initially, it'll recreate that pain. You could also have a tearing in the fascia, which actually allows like a, a minor hernia of the muscle to, to bulge through, which would be something different because there is a lot of fascia in the quads. Um, if there was uh, like a deeper type hematoma, if there's a crash once that he's not aware of or she's not aware of and there is a mass in there, typically if the mass, it, it would make sense that with heavy load, it's, it's recreating the symptoms because basically you're, it's like you're taking your hand and pushing it down. Higher loads, lower t- or heavier torque, lower RPMs, you're really going to recruit the quads much more than the hamstrings and the hip extensors, and you're going to compress that, which is going to create the symptoms. The, the big question is what is that lump, and is it something that just, if it's not working out with the rolling uh, it might be worth getting a diagnostic test because it sounds like it's bothering them. I don't know that you can get a neuroma in there, but I'm not saying that you can't either. Right. So I would really just, not knowing the exact mechanism, I mean, if I could look at it, I might get a better guess, but to see what is that lump, because that's telling me there's actually something happening in the muscle. And, <clears throat> you know, before we go into my story, just to give you a, a case of why if something isn't really usual, I like to get it cleared out. I had a patient once, speaking of whiplash, got in a car accident. Pretty straightforward, nothing major. Had this neck pain, not unusual. I evaluated them, saw a couple things, treated them, came back for a second visit. It was exactly the same. 
He wasn't better. He wasn't worse. Now, normally, if I treat you, I'm not even bothered if you're worse because it means I did have an impact on <laughs> the tissue or the joint, maybe just did too much or did the wrong thing. He was exactly the same. So I said, well, that's weird. There's a couple other things. Let's work on these. See what it does. And the things that I'd worked on were better. So when I looked at them again, they were gone. They were clear. Treated two other things. Comes in the next time. He's exactly the same. He's not better, not worse. And this not changed one I owed it. I thought, okay, this is strange. I said, uh, okay, I'm going to do one other thing. If you don't feel any different tomorrow, call me. Calls me tomorrow. He's like, it's exactly the same. I said, you know what? Something's not right. I don't know what it is, but this is not physiological. So, you know, physiological, if I punch you in the thigh and the next day you're like, man, my thigh hurts. Okay, that makes sense. But if you just woke up and you had that kind of thigh pain with no trauma and it lasted for a week, something's strange. I sent him to his doctor. They did a scan and he had a tumor in his spine. Cool. I did not know it. He's like, how did you know I had a tumor? I had no idea you had a tumor. I just knew this wasn't muscular and this wasn't joint. And that's what I treat. So something was not right. So if something seems out of the ordinary, hopefully it's nothing. And I'm not trying to scare people. <clears throat> but when it doesn't follow a good pattern, it's not a bad idea to get it cleared out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that actually... Well, I just wanted to follow up. I think that's that's awesome advice. I would just... More personal, actually. If it was a tearing of the fascia, mm -hmm. where, where would that... Like, could you do that, like, really straining going up a climb or with strength training? Or you know, what, if you overload... Usually? Yeah, I mean, you could do that. It could be a forceful... Um, a lot of times it's going to be a, a trauma like an impact, but right. I've seen where people have overloaded and they've popped something. I mean, you're getting... Some people's fascia is tighter than others. Some people, I mean, there's different tissue qualities of different people. And if you pushed hard enough, I wouldn't say this would be a common thing. But could there be a structural weakness, possibly from a prior injury or something that made just a little bit of a structural weakness? And when you're doing, you know, hard efforts on a hill, you're really pumping your quads. You know, it's just like a weak piece in tissue and it starts to pop through. I mean, certainly possible. I'm not saying it would be common. Right. But you don't know, was there ever a trauma in the he's past two or three years? I mean, he's definitely crashed a bunch. So. <laughs> and and um, you never know. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's hypothetical, but you just don't know. I mean, I've seen weird things that you just look and go, how in the world right. could you present like this? And I've seen people with just like knobs in their, in their shin. And it's a, it's a soft tissue where they've had a fashion that looks like, you know, a ping pong ball just sticking out and it doesn't bother them. But under load, it just just pops right up. And when they relax and everything calms down, it's gone. So it may not be that, but if it was truly just like a trigger point or just a knot in the tissue, rolling it will usually break that up and he would see a significant improvement at some point. If it's not improving with fairly conservative treatment, it's not a bad idea just to have somebody say, you know what, it's no big deal. Do this. And that's fine. But but I think one of the mistakes is to sometimes go, ah, it's not that big a deal. As you know, as Molly is aware with me. Absolutely. You know, and sometimes actually, you're like, ah, it's not that big a deal. And then you turn out, well, son of a bitch, that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
You yeah. know, better safe than sorry in a case. If it's not a, I've seen this a million times, do A, B, C, and then D will happen. If, if you keep doing A, B, C, and D doesn't happen, okay, you know, either get it diagnosed properly so we know what we should do for it, figure out what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of leads to my, my last thing, which is going to be, I want to go into the, the PSA, I suppose, about saddle service. Mm-hmm. So if you can kind of share yeah. that story that we've talked about before, I think it's just so important to yeah. so many cyclists out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and it's, it's one of those, I mean, every cyclist, well, I would imagine every cyclist at some point in their life gets a saddle sore. Yes, absolutely. And certainly, you know, I'm no different. Normally it'd be one of those, uh, you know what, maybe... You know, maybe I should have gotten out of the chamois a little sooner. I mean, you never know what. Or, you know, maybe you got an ingrown hair. Who the heck knows? But but I'd been actually riding quite a lot. It's probably, I was actually getting ready to race the Iceman. And I had had, uh, you know, a couple people give me some ideas on training. So I was, I was training like a banshee. I mean, I'd say my lowest training week, in addition to working, was probably 10 hours a week. Typically... 13 hours a week. So I was 10 to 13 and working, you know, over 40 hours a week. So mm-hmm. I felt I was lean, I was fit, feeling good. Um, and I had a saddle sore that basically had been going on for, I mean, I, I don't even know. It honestly, probably two to three years. And it was just an annoyance, you know. And in the off season, it wasn't a big deal, you know, and it would go down and then it would kind of get worse when you rode a lot. But it finally got to the point where, you know, I did that race, and in the spring I started riding again. I was like, you know, it's it's getting to the point, like, it itches at night. Mm-hmm. I try to ride, and, you know, I just feel like now I'm adjusting my position on the saddle because I just, it's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. It's just gotten too big. I don't like this anymore. So it was finally, all right, I'll get this, you know, the saddle sore cut out, whatever. I'll be down for a couple weeks. So I went to... Um, Went to my doctor, he looked at it, he gave me some steroid cream, I put it on, that helped the itch, didn't help the size, I went back in, <clears throat> I think three weeks or a month, he looked and uh, he's like, well, what do you think, you want more cream? I said, you know, I think I just need it removed, because it's really not changing, it's like, great that it doesn't itch, but I don't want to have to use cream all the time. Mm-hmm. So, he recommends me to go see this colorectal guy, and I go there, and he's a super nice guy, funny guy. This was right before the Tour of California in uh, 2012. So I go in there, and uh, he sees it, <clears throat> and he's like, okay, uh, I can just cut it out right now. And it's like, oh, okay. great. didn't realize it was going to be an office thing. And being stupid enough to have this for three years, I said, is it going to hurt? <laughs> so he took a syringe, and he poked me there. And I was like, ouch. He's like, did that hurt? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, of course it's going to hurt. It's your crotch. What are you thinking? <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm stupid. So we, you know, prep on the table. He cuts it out. I said, okay, we'll send it to the lab. You know, why don't you come back on Monday? And I said, okay, because I'm flying out Tuesday to go to California. He goes, all right. So I come in with my wife, tags along on Monday. And I said, he's like, yeah, I'm glad you came in today. I was like, okay, you know, whatever. It just seems it's healing fine. I feel good. And he's like, well, you know, uh, your test came back funny. And it was just one of those, like, you had a weird feeling, like, how would it come back funny, you know? But, Mm -hmm. you know, he did poke me with a needle, so I don't know. And uh, he says, uh, it's come back as cancer. And I just thought, 
yeah, no. I said, well, you know, being super smart, I said, well, it's probably because I had a saddle sore for this long and I just beat the tissue so much that it looks like that. And he said, no, it's, it's cancer. And I said, well, couldn't you, if you traumatize tissue long enough, it can morph into a different type of tissue. And he said, yes, that's very true, but it would not morph into this type of tissue. This is adenocarcinoma. This is a type of cancer that will come from, say, the colon, uh, from the rectum, something. It's, it's an internal tissue that it's going to come from. Mm-hmm. And having my older sister had died from colon cancer. So, you know, obviously my wife looks like she saw a ghost. But I still was not buying this. I was like, you know, no, I feel good, though. I have not felt sick, and even my wife could corroborate. I said, I, you know, I will ride all day, and I can ride all day the next day. I don't feel bad. I don't have any sickness. He said, that's great, but, um, you know, you need to go see an oncologist. So I said, well, you know, why don't we do this? I have to fly out tomorrow. So you want to do a colonoscopy since my sister had died of colon cancer. So that was the most obvious bet. Everyone figured I have colon cancer, and it has shown up here. So I flew out to California, which he thought was not the smartest thing I was ever going to do, but <laughs> I'm, I'm notorious for that. I came back after the race, and it was funny because we're out at the race, and we had a day at Big Bear, and they're like, here, why don't you take you know, Tom's bike and ride to the finish you know, and go see him. I was like, eh, I'm not going to ride. They're like, no, no, you can take his bike. It's cool. I like, yeah, I don't feel like riding today. <laughs> I had stitches in my crotch. I didn't want to tell him. Because yeah. I know you tell somebody, I think I might have cancer. Then it's like, why don't you sit down? We'll bring you some water. Mm-hmm. Don't work on anybody. And I hate that. So come back from California, and they, I told one guy finally, and then they, they kind of figured it out. But So I go back. I arrive in uh, Denver, immediately start fasting. The next day I do a colonoscopy come out the doctor's like wow i mean it's not that anyone would want to eat out of my colon but you could have it was that clean it was beautiful no nothing so this is great and they're like okay so i follow up with the oncologist and it's like okay so we check this off the box they start looking at other things well this apparently is a was a strange case because they could not figure out where it was coming from they did PET scans, and the only area that would light up is where they cut it out, which was basically feeding into me saying, see, you were wrong. There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was right before the London Olympics, so I was supposed to head out for BMX camp with the BMX team. And the other docs were like, well, you know, I think we may be able to just keep an eye on it and watch it. And I said, okay, so I'm getting ready to make the plans to fly out. And I saw the oncologist who said, we're starting chemo and radiation. ASAP. I said, no, I'm supposed to go to BMX camp. She said, you're not going anywhere. We're doing chemo radiation. And I said, I think you're missing the boat here. You know, this is really not that big a deal. And she said, so when you have this spread and you get really sick, do you want to tell your kids that, uh, you know, you went to this bike race, but that's why you're going to die? And I was like, okay. So, um, you know, I said, well, I'm supposed to fly to London August 4th to work for the mountain bike and BMX team. 
So she's like, well, if we did that, we'd have to start chemo Monday. I said, well, then let's start chemo Monday. <laughs> so I went in, they put the implant in, they, they did the pick line and everything. And we went through that, and I basically just kept, you know, USA Psychic, I have to say Jim Miller, Ken Dale, Mark, those guys were awesome. Because basically, I said, look, I don't know how I'm going to be, you should replace me. And they said, why don't you just keep us in the loop? Just be honest with us, tell us how you're doing, and we'll plan on you going. Which gave me kind of a target to go for, which was nice. So, first four days into chemo, I'm like, you know, this is for... You know, Lance, my butt, you know, it's like, <laughs> chemo, whatever. I, this is awesome. I'm working. Everything's cool. And I, then I came back. I sit down in my chair, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, my God, I got run over by a truck. And I am terrified of chemo after that moment. It just, it destroys you. Mm-hmm. But so I went through the whole cycle. You start to recover. You go back. And after all that was done, the nice thing was, they gave me a booster shot. I was able to fly out to London um, a couple days after I finished treatment and, and work with the Olympic team, which was nice. And I will say I thought I was pretty awesome. Looking back, I don't know if I was because I did budgets for work. And eight months later, I'm like, who in the hell came up with this budget? And they're like, you did. There's no way. You would have to have brain damage. And they're like, dude, this was your budget. And then mm-hmm. that's where the whole chemo brain comes in. But an interesting thing was, I'm now, it'll be five years, I hit my five-year mark in, uh, I guess, at the end of the treatment, which would be July of this year. But I went back to my doctor earlier this year for a follow-up, and I said, you know, I, I still think that, you know, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have done this. And he looked at me, and he said, seriously? He said, do you realize, because I would get bills from Duke, I would get bills from the Cleveland Clinic, and I'm like, why the hell am I getting medical bills from these people? I've never left Colorado. (laughs) And he said, nobody has seen anything like this before. They were consulting with everybody. This was a very strange case. If you thought that you were going to be able to half-ass this, you were sadly mistaken. And this was over four years after it started, and I was like, wow, talk about a cold slap of reality. It was like... Wow, that was pretty harsh. And here's a case of, I had a saddle sore, and I let it go for almost three years because, you know what, up until the end, I could ride with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it itched at night sometimes, but really, other than that, I could get on the bike, hey, I'll put some chamois cream, sometimes I'd, you know, put some, like, lidocaine cream to numb it a little bit so it didn't bother me, but yeah, you do whatever. And, you know, now looking back, it's like, had I treated this early saying, okay, this is strange that a saddle sore hasn't gone away mm-hmm. and addressed it, you know, I would never have had the joy of, of chemotherapy, which is, uh, you know, it's to this day, I would say I have impacts of it. I mean, it's, it was honestly three years before I felt like I could ride and have a response like I did before I had it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was that much of a change. And I still, to this day, I now have to use an inhaler to run because I just, I could run a half mile and I can't breathe. So I've had to use an inhaler end. And that was part of my thing, too. I thought, well, you know, I remember when Lance Armstrong did this when I read his book. <laughs> they did one that would spare the lungs. And he was like, yeah, just shut up. You know, you were not going to have a lot of vote on what you did here. So, um, 
yeah, it was. It's a kind of a cautionary tale on something that you know you feel good. This mm-hmm. is a run of the mill thing, and again, being male and you know underplaying things, it it, it had potentially devastating consequences. Yeah, I love it. I think that kind of that story kind of goes back to the message of you know seek preventative care or you know seek, be proactive about treating you know any kind of injury. So I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap up on that note. We've we've taken yep. up a lot of your afternoon, but yep. thank you so much. That yep. was all. And awesome. I would just say the one bit of advice that I would tell anybody mm-hmm. is if something just seems weird, don't brush it off as weird. Absolutely. Be it you're not recovering as quick as you want. Anything like that, just get it checked. There's professionals. You can take it. And the worst, you know what? If you go there and you pay for a checkup and it's okay, okay, you're out of copay. Not yeah. a big deal. Yeah, like that's actually great news. So <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Oh, it was a pleasure. Really it was a pleasure. It. It was great chatting with you. Enjoy your Likewise. weekend. Thank you. You do the same. Right. Thanks take for care. Care. Appreciate Bye. It. Bye. Okay, bye now. Thanks so much for listening to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. We would love if you would head over to iTunes and leave us a review. And while you're there, consider subscribing. We'd also love to connect over at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Molly J. Herford and Peter is at Peter Glassford. If you have ideas or questions from today's podcast, or you just want to browse some of the show notes and past shows, you can also check us out at consummateathlete.com. Thanks, guys, and we will see you next time.